Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 67, The Road to STS-1. Last week, we learned about the approach and landing tests. With the space shuttle being NASA's first orbital spacecraft with wings, a glider with no engines for landing, they had to be sure that it was possible to land it in a controlled fashion. The not-so-fledgling space agency produced Space Shuttle Enterprise, OV-101, retrofitted a Boeing 747, and got to work. Astronauts Fred Hayes, Gordon Fullerton, Joe Engel, and Dick Truly flew the new spacecraft in a series of test flights that proved the shuttle would work as advertised. Well, for the last five minutes or so of the flight, at least. As difficult as the approach and landing tests were, the final landing was probably the easiest part of any shuttle mission. Unflyable bricks were something that any competent test pilot could handle, most of the time. But the rest of a shuttle mission, that was something new. If an orbital space shuttle mission was to conclude successfully, there were countless mechanisms, input devices, and subroutines that all had to perform flawlessly. But there were three aspects of a space shuttle flight in particular that stood out. One was a challenge that all launch vehicle designers were acutely aware of. One was familiar, but had been cranked up both with regards to its complexity and its central role in the mission. And one was new exotic territory that NASA only hoped they would be able to figure out in time. These three aspects were the engines, the computers, and the tiles. Compared with some modern spacecraft, not naming any names, the space shuttle had a relatively trouble-free development. But that doesn't mean it was all smooth sailing. When work began in 1972, the plan was to fly the first orbital missions sometime in 1979. But since, as we'll soon find out, STS-1 didn't fly until April of 1981, there were clearly some substantial bumps encountered on the road to success. So let's take a look at these three long poles in the tent to get a better appreciation for why they were so hard. Perhaps the least surprising bump was the three big bumps sticking out the back of the orbiter, the space shuttle main engines. The shuttle designers were concerned that these would take a long time to get right, and with good reason. Rocket engines are borderline impossible to create. As a comparison, let's roll back the clock a bit and look at our previous launch vehicle, the Saturn V. At the base of the Saturn V were five F-1 engines. The F-1s were staggeringly powerful, but all things considered, weren't really all that complex. Liquid oxygen is always a hassle to deal with, but RP-1 is just kerosene, and that's not too tough to handle. And the engine design was a gas generator, which is relatively simple. Given all that, the F-1 still blew up its fair share of test stands and took about 12 years from initial work to first flight. Jumping back to the shuttle, and things have changed a bit. In the space shuttle main engine's favor is the fact that technology had improved and lots more had been learned about propulsion during the heady days of the 1960s. Also in the SSME's favor was the fact that NASA was rightfully spooked by their complexity, so got to work really early with initial ideas being kicked around in 1969 and proper contracts being awarded in 1970, well ahead of the shuttle itself. Working against it were a couple of factors. First, gone was the nice benign kerosene for fuel, and in was liquid hydrogen. Liquid hydrogen is almost unthinkably cold, 
does weird stuff to metals, and has such small molecules that it can leak through just about anything. Sometimes hydrogen doesn't even need a gap, and it can just permeate right through solid surfaces. Second, instead of a gas generator cycle, the SSMEs would be using a staged combustion cycle. The gist of this difference is that rather than wasting the exhaust from the turbo pumps by dumping it overboard, it would instead be redirected back into the combustion chamber. This resulted in a more efficient engine, but it also introduced a lot of extra complexity. Third, these engines were reusable. The F1 engines had to work for about two minutes. The SSMEs were expected to run for seven and a half hours. Okay, that wasn't all in one go, and there would be maintenance in between flights, but still, that's several orders of magnitude longer. And lastly, at least for today, is that the SSMEs needed to be throttleable, going down to as low as 65% of rated thrust. As we learned from the Lunar Module Descent Propulsion System, rocket engines don't like to be throttled, and it's a great way to introduce combustion instability. All this is to say that the SSMEs posed a formidable challenge, and since problems were likely to arise during development, they better get started right away if they wanted to be ready when the rest of the spacecraft was good to go. And it's a good thing, too, since, as expected, a number of problems were encountered. According to a list by Chief Project Engineer Robert Biggs, some of the major issues included perfecting the start sequence, high-pressure fuel turbopump whirl, a high-pressure oxidizer turbopump explosion, fuel pre-burner burn-through, high-pressure fuel turbopump turbine failure, main oxidizer valve fire, nozzle steer horn failure, and main fuel valve housing rupture. Testing hardware is always challenging, since if something goes wrong, it's not like you can just hit a button and try again. As an example, when a turbine blade tore off, it managed to sort of ping-pong around the rest of the engine, wreaking havoc as it did. But it seems that testing was also challenging because they tried to use a method that's common in software, but is much more difficult with hardware, testing each piece in isolation. Presenting the correct interface and conditions to each isolated piece required massively complex test stands, which often were the source of problems on their own. Each failure could cause delays lasting months as the damage was analyzed and new parts were fabricated. In the end, the engines were ready to go on the belated launch day, but only thanks to a grueling, resource-intensive, and time-consuming effort. Next was something that wasn't uncharted territory, but wasn't exactly home turf either. Computers. NASA helped to push the boundaries of what computers were capable of during the Apollo program. Up until that point, people tended to think of computers as room-sized behemoths rather than something a human could pick up, let alone fly to the moon. But in order to precisely control the trajectory of the command and lunar modules as they made their way to the moon and back, NASA needed to figure out how to bring a digital computer along for the ride. The Apollo guidance computer was, in some aspects, surprisingly modern but it was also extremely single-purpose. It had to be in order to adapt to the constraints of the time. For the shuttle, NASA would need something a little more flexible. But it would still need to remain robust. More than any previous spacecraft, the computer systems would be the central core of the orbiter for a number of reasons. For one thing, the orbiter was just far more complex than the Apollo systems. 
that there was going to be any hope of keeping an eye on all of the systems and keeping them in working order, a new level of automation was going to be required. But more strikingly, the orbiter was a fly-by-wire system. That is, when the pilots moved the control sticks, there was no cable connecting to a control surface. Rather, the control stick informed the computer that the pilot would like to do something, and the computer figured out how to do it. These days, this doesn't really sound like such a shocking idea, but in the 1970s, it was pretty cutting-edge stuff. If the computer was going to be the gatekeeper on everything from life support systems to communications to flight controls, it had to be bulletproof. At the heart of the computer system were four IBM AP101 general purpose computers. These weren't exactly the quickest computers on Earth, but they were rugged and reliable. Plus, NASA already had experience with similar computers aboard Skylab. Each computer had about 500 kilobytes of memory, enough to hold a modestly sized JPEG. But hey, that's still about eight times as big as the Apollo computers. The four computers all ran the same software and essentially voted on what to do 440 times a second. This way, if one machine developed a physical defect or was struck by a cosmic ray or something, the whole system wouldn't go bonkers. If a machine consistently gave a different answer than the rest, it was booted from the group and a backup computer was brought online. Speaking from my experience with asynchronous programming, the idea of trying to get four independent computers to sync up 440 times a second sounds, uh, non-trivial. The memory was small enough that astronauts had to swap out software suites depending on the phase of flight. So for instance, you'd load in the Ascent software before launch, but once on orbit, you'd dump that software and load in new stuff for the main part of the mission. It sort of reminds me of when older video games stopped and told you to insert the next disc. Outside of the main general purpose computers were a bunch of other systems that allowed them to interface with the rest of the vehicle. A master timer unit allowed all components to use a unified time reference. Data buses allowed components across the orbiter to communicate with the computers, and the multiplexer demultiplexers allowed data to go onto or off of the bus. And all that is just the hardware. The computer software was divided into a core executive system and higher level programs. I believe it's essentially like an operating system versus user programs, but I'm not quite sure on that one. The executive stuff was all written in assembly, extremely low-level programming that essentially required the programmers to speak the same language as the computer. For the user programs, the stuff that controlled displays, particular payloads, and might vary from mission to mission, NASA used a language called HAL-S. HAL-S is a pretty ominous name for a programming language on an important computer, but it just stood for High Order Assembly Language Shuttle. The language was designed to be simple to develop flight and guidance software in, so it had stuff like easy ways to handle vectors. It also had this bizarre syntax sugar that allowed you to write one command over three lines, with the first line containing superscripts and the third line containing subscripts. So if you wanted to write x squared, you literally put an x on the middle line and then a 2 to the top right of the x on the first line. Really, really weird. The software is some of the cleanest bug-free code ever written, but with the price tag to prove it. We don't have time to get into it here, but if you throw they write the right stuff into your search engine of choice, 
there is a really fascinating article by Fast Company that gets all into the space shuttle software development process. And last on today's list of big gnarly technical problems, the infamous tiles. The orbiter's central structure was made out of aluminum, which meant it couldn't be allowed to get much hotter than 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Objects entering the atmosphere at 17,500 miles per hour get, well, considerably hotter than that. In order to keep the orbiter cool, it was covered in an incredibly intricate thermal protection system, or TPS. The TPS was made out of three basic parts. Reinforced carbon-carbon, thermal blankets, and silica tiles. We already touched on the reinforced carbon-carbon, or RCC, in the Orbiter episode, but we'll do a quick refresher. RCC is a material that is made via a process that seems to me to be somewhat similar to making carbon fiber. They would start with a flexible material, heat it in a special environment in a very specific way, throw in the proper additives, and they got the final product. The final product was a gray material that was fairly strong, but also brittle. So rather than dent, it would break. But it would withstand completely insane heat, up to 3,220 degrees Fahrenheit, which made it perfect for the hottest parts of the shuttle, the leading edges of the wings and the nose cone. Though it's worth noting that the RCC is a pretty lousy thermal insulator. That means that the inside of those structures were just about as hot as the outside. So behind the nose cone and leading edges of the wings was more insulation to protect the main structure. From what I can tell, even with this problem, RCC was useful because it could be molded to form the proper shape for the aerodynamics while withstanding the temperatures. Among other non-space applications, you can find RCC in the brakes of Formula One cars. On the opposite end of the spectrum were a few types of thermal blankets. For the most benign areas, like the top of the payload bay doors, these would basically just be Nomex felt, the same type of stuff that keeps race car drivers safe from fiery crashes. Other, more demanding areas would be covered in flexible insulation blankets, with a capital F, capital I, capital B. The blankets were great because they were tough but pliable, so they were easy to install. If only they could withstand more than 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, this whole thermal protection system thing would have been a little easier. The blankets were mostly made out of fibrous silica and stitched together with thread made of glass and quartz. I have no idea how that works, but I guess that's why I'm not a material sciences expert. You would mostly find the blankets along the top and sides of the orbiter. The rest of the orbiter was protected by specially crafted silica tiles. A lot of them. For the first orbital flight, the shuttle was covered in 30,759 of them. These can be broken down to about 7,000 low-temperature reusable surface insulation tiles and 24,000 high-temperature reusable surface insulation tiles. LRSI and HRSI for short, but you really only need to pay attention to the L or the H for low or high. The LRSI tiles were white in appearance and could withstand temperatures up to about 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. Sharp-eared listeners may notice that that's actually less than the flexible insulation blankets. And you're right. 
Later orbiters would use far more blankets and far fewer LRSI tiles to take advantage of the relative durability and ease of installation. The LRSI tiles would be mostly found on the top and sides of the orbiter. Most of the tiles were the HRSIs, designed for high temperature, and were found on the orbiter's belly. These tiles were black in appearance due to a special glassy coating that, if I understand correctly, not only made the tiles slightly more durable, but also allowed the tiles to better radiate away heat. In general, each tile was 6 inches by 6 inches and 1 to 5 inches thick, depending on what their particular part of the orbiter called for. Each tile had an individual identification number sprayed onto it with a special high temperature paint so that they could be assessed over time. Really, a lot of the tiles were pretty similar, but they had to be subtly different. The orbiter's belly wasn't just a flat surface, it curved. In order to prevent little steps and corners from rigidly square tiles stuck to a curved surface, which could disrupt the hypersonic boundary layer, each tile had to subtly change in depth. You might be wondering why the tiles were the size they were. Why 24,000 6x6 six inch tiles instead of 6,000 12-by-12-inch tiles, or even 1,524-by-24-inch tiles. The problem was that, A, they were pretty brittle, so if one broke, you didn't want to lose too much protection. And B, space is a very challenging thermal environment. With one side of the orbiter heating up to several hundred degrees, and the other side cooling down to a few hundred below zero, the structure would bend and flex. Ceramic isn't known for its flexibility, so the big tiles would crack and break. But a whole ton of tiles, placed very, very closely together, but not quite touching, would allow the whole structure to gently move without causing damage. The benefit of these tiles was that unlike the Apollo heat shields, these were extremely light and were able to be used multiple times over many flights. The downside is that they were extremely extremely labor-intensive. Each tile could take upwards of 40 hours just to attach it to the orbiter, though a lot of that time was waiting for the adhesive to cure. Once it was attached, specially crafted non-destructive pull tests were performed to make sure it was firmly in place. A lot of them weren't, or they cracked when tested, and the tile would have to be reattached all over again. Worse, the threading in the super-thin Nomex strain isolation pad between the tiles and the orbiter skin created stress points that could cause cracking. A new technique had to be applied to strengthen the interior face of the tiles, but that also meant that countless tiles had to be reapplied all over again. The tiles presented an interesting material science problem, but at the end of the day, it just took a super long time to put them in place and make sure they were okay. A significant part of the STS-1 delay can be attributed to the fact that attaching tiles just took a long time. There's a comparison I like to make from time to time. There's challenging like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube, and there's challenging like trying to drink a gallon of milk in an hour without puking. It seems to me that getting the shuttle tiles in place was the latter. Incidentally, I recently learned that there is no public database containing the status of these tiles from mission to mission. I assumed that such a thing existed and went looking for it, and instead just found a cool guy who took the trouble of setting up a website to try to draw attention to the problem. 
Such a record must exist in some form, but that form might be a big pile of three-ring binders in some box in storage. Making it public might be as simple as finding out the specific name of the resource in question so a focused inquiry can be made. So, if you happen to know anything about these tiles, or know someone who might, you can either head to the dedicated website I found, shuttletiles.space, or shoot me an email at jp at thespaceabove.us. One major innovation of the space shuttle era that might be easy to overlook from the outside was a whole new division of labor within the astronaut corps. As you'll recall, up to this point, just about everyone we've been dealing with has been a test pilot. There were a few scientist astronauts or astronauts with medical backgrounds who made an appearance on Apollo 17 and the Skylab flights, but they were the exception. And these test pilot guys took it seriously. So much so that literally every crew position was either commander or had pilot in the name. Project Mercury, the guy flying it was the pilot. Project Gemini, well you got the pilot and the um, command pilot. With Apollo, we had everything from command pilot, senior pilot, command module pilot, lunar module pilot, and just normal pilot. Skylab, science pilot. Apollo Soyuz test project, docking module pilot. Has the word pilot lost all meaning yet? Semantic satiation is a weird thing. The point is that thus far, space had been the domain of the test pilot. With the shuttle, new opportunities presented themselves. Of course we're still going to need a pilot. In fact, all astronauts even to this day learn how to fly jets. NASA believes there's something about that pilot mindset that's beneficial. But on a shuttle flight, the responsibility for actually flying the spacecraft would fall on only two people. The commander and the pilot. That left up to five other people who were there just to focus on the mission or payload. Their training would involve all shuttle systems, but they would specialize less on the shuttle itself and more on the mission at hand. In fact, let's just go ahead and call them mission specialists, because, you know, that's what they're called. In a reversal that surprised some of the new commanders and pilots, the folks actually flying the spacecraft would play far less central a role than in the Apollo days. Instead, it was the mission specialists who would shine, tackling the intricacies of each new mission as they arose. That's not to say that the commander's and pilot's job wasn't as demanding, it's just that it wasn't quite the central focus anymore. The hope was that they could do their thing, safely getting the shuttle into orbit and back home, while the rest of the crew focused on the specifics of that particular mission. It also created a pretty sharp divide in the astronaut corps. Up until this point, all astronauts had been pretty much the same, being able to slot into any role for any mission. The exception, of course, were the few scientist astronauts who were sort of proto-mission specialists. But now, there would be more mission specialists than pilots. Their roles clearly delineated. I honestly don't know how this dynamic played out over time among the astronauts, and I'm looking forward to learning more about it as we move forward. Further shaking up the dynamic was a third type of crew member, the payload specialist. Since the dream of the space shuttle was that it could provide safe, benign, routine access to orbit, the thought was that even a non-career astronaut could fly. Let's say you were deploying a particularly tricky payload. Maybe it makes sense to have an expert from the manufacturer on board to help troubleshoot problems in real time. 
Sure, they need to be trained on emergency procedures and the basics of the shuttle, but they wouldn't need to go through the full multi-year astronaut candidate process. These payload specialists would be a common sight during the early shuttle program, but were always a bit controversial. But we won't be discussing any payload specialists today. That's because we have 54 new astronauts to introduce. I know last time I said 35, but that's because I forgot we have both Astronaut Group 8 from 1978 and Astronaut Group 9 from 1980 to get through. This is by far the biggest group of astronauts we'll ever have to get through in one go. To be honest, with so many names, I'm not sure rattling them off is going to be the most useful thing, but I at least want to get them on your radar, so let's just get into it. Astronaut Group 8 went by the nickname the TFNGs, which definitely, definitely stood for 35 new guys, and not something that would require an explicit tag on this episode. For sure. This was the first new group of astronauts since the manned orbiting laboratory guys joined in 1969, nine years earlier. It included a far more diverse group of crew members, including, finally, the first non-white astronauts and the first women astronauts. I'm sure to mispronounce some of these, so feel free to send in corrections. Starting with the pilots and moving through alphabetically, we've got Daniel Brandenstein, Michael Coates, Richard Covey, John Crichton, Hoot Gibson, Fred Gregory, David Griggs, Rick Hawk, John McBride, Stephen Nagel, Dick Scobie, Brewster Shaw, Lawrence Shriver, Dave Walker, and Don Williams. For mission specialists, Guy Bluford, James Buckley, John Fabian, Anna Fisher, Dale Gardner, Terry Hart, Stephen Hawley, Jeffrey Hoffman, Shannon Lucid, Ron McNair, Mike Mullane, George Nelson, Ellison Onizuka, Judy Resnick, Sally Ride, Rhea Sedan, Robert Stewart, Catherine Sullivan, Norman Thagard, and James Von Hoften. Moving on to the 19 people in Astronaut Group 9, selected in 1980 and nicknamed 19 plus 80, we'll start again with the pilots. John Blaha, Charlie Bolden, Roy Bridges, Guy Gardner, Ronald Grabe, Brian O'Connor, Dick Richards, and Michael Smith. And the mission specialists, James Baggin, Franklin Chang Diaz, Mary Cleave, Bonnie Dunbar, William Fisher, David Hilmers, David Leistma, John Lounge, Jerry Ross, Sherwood Spring, Bob Springer, Claude Nicolier, and last but not least, Wubble Ockles. All 54 people on this list would fly at least once, so we'll be hearing more about them soon. Which is good, because I'm sure with so many names dumped on you all at once, not many are going to stick. Two names that I hope will stick, however, are John Young and Bob Crippen. That's because they are the commander and pilot of the first ever space shuttle flight, STS-1. The long wait is over. Close and lock your visors and initiate O2 flow, because Columbia is go for auto-sequence start. 
Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.